relentless. That's what Eddie is, that's what I am, and that's what you've been. Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. In this episode, I'm talking to an old friend of mine, Barry Hearn, the world's biggest sports promoter who puts on over 650 events worldwide each year. Barry was really generous this time, so keep listening to his take on Anthony Joshua versus Tyson Fury, the rise of darts, and the time he had a fistfight with his son, Eddie, and lost. Here's the man himself, the godfather of sporting events, Mr. Barry Hearn. Gaza, how you doing, mate? I'm good, Roger. I'm very good indeed. Good, good, good. You're looking well. I really do appreciate you uh, coming on the show. I had nothing else to do, Roger. I thought I might as well spend an hour with you, you know. I <laughs> love it. Playing the future without knowing what the future is going to be looking like is not the easiest job in the world, as you know. Yeah. So uh, it's quite nice to have a little distraction and talk about other rubbish, you know. <laughs> love it, love it. So we'll, let's get cracking. How did you get into sporting events and why? I mean, going back into the 70s, I was, you know, I, I, my company that employed me bought a chain of snooker halls on my recommendation and made me the chairman, which was, which was nice. It was a career-changing moment. Um, but I looked at the business and thought, you know, I always look for weaknesses first because if you can eradicate weaknesses, you've got a stronger business. And the weakness of the snooker hall business was the summer months because no one went in the snooker hall because it was too hot. There was no air conditioning. They had other things to do. They'd rather play golf or go around the betting shop or whatever, watch the horses. Um, so I created events to actually drive traffic into my snooker halls in the summer months. And it's a pretty basic common sense example of targeting market to an audience that you're trying to attract and, and re retain, you know, and it worked, you know, I did a certain, for example, I did the Lucania Nationals, it was like my first event in 1975, it was in September, but the guys practiced throughout July and August to get good for September, so it gave me business, so that was the sort of first step of, you know, I never intended to be an event person, particularly, it just common sense evolved into it, because you know, it's a market that if you've got a little bit of get up and go, you can do something with, you know, and yeah. make a living, which is what I started off trying to do. Absolutely. And how, how did it get to the point where you were taking snooker onto the TV? Well, I mean, when I sold the snooker business in 82, I'd already built up a small management business of looking after, you know, the likes of Steve Davis and Tony Mio, Terry Griffiths, uh, traveling, you know, started doing a few overseas events. So I, I had a small base. Suddenly, I'd made a pile of money, thought I might retire. I was only 34. <laughs> I was a bit young. <laughs> I thought I'd just play. I wanted to play, I wanted to play snooker. And I wanted to play uh, golf. I wanted to play cricket. And I wanted to go fishing. And I did that every day for about six weeks. And then I was climbing up the wall. You know, when you're an entrepreneurial, especially an entrepreneurial event person that lives off the passion of live sport, it's not something you can replace with just, mundane things that in the past have been a treat like a round of golf when you do it every day yeah. it's not the same so then I started I thinking well I've got to do something I'm 34 years old it's not for the money I've got enough money now um let's do some sports events because one I'm passionate about sport two it's fun and three you know what I might actually nick a living a little living out of it yeah. so died <laughs> off as on, in 1982, when Matchroom was formed, it was a £100 company, and it started off with one intention, that was to have fun. And I don't think that, although we've changed now with slightly bigger yeah. uh, global company, the, the real objective is always still to have fun. Now, if you're having fun and you're any good at what you're doing, there's no reason why you can't make money as well. But you can't just do the event business, in my, in my view, you can't do it and put your heart and soul into it unless you're having fun. Yeah, totally agree. And, regard, and regarding the snooker on the telly, how, was the, how did that business model work for you personally? Well, I mean, I had a stroke of luck, as always, because I have a face. I, I mean, I'm such a lucky 
<laughs> Every time I touch something, it used to turn to gold. You know, it's frightening, really. But hey, the, the, the secret of being lucky is everyone's lucky at some stage. It's how you take advantage of that luck. That's the keystone. That's the turning point of changing your life around, taking advantage of situations, recognising situations. And for me, my stroke of luck with snooker was when we bought the snooker clubs in about 74, suddenly the BBC put snooker on mainstream television and suddenly everyone was telling me I was a genius. How did I spot this coming? The answer is I didn't. It was just luck. But having said that, suddenly we were in prime position to maximise this new upset. And of course, you know, your brain starts working. How do I maximize? You know, don't want to sit still. You can't sit still in the event business. You've got to innovate. You've got to create. You've got to move every single moment. You've got to try and get better and better. You've got to try and recognize how you can make the customer's experience better and better. So then you become leader of the pack instead of one of the pack. So the actual business model of the of the snooker back then, was that mainly the revenues from TV uh, sponsorship? Were they the two main revenue streams back then? Yeah, I mean... BBC were very supportive, obviously, early doors. And once you're on BBC, getting big numbers on free-to-air television, sponsorship was quite easy. Ticket money was slowish to start with, but then, of course, it built and built on the success of the event. The business model is it's very straightforward. You know, I don't understand how these people make it complicated. You know, on the left-hand side, I've got my expenses. On the right-hand side, I've got my income. Now, the big idea is to get my income a little bit bigger than my expenses. So all I look at is the principle of value for money for both sides. Am I giving people value for money? Am I giving sponsors, TV? If the ratings are good, the answer is yes. Am I getting value for money? Well, what am I paying to stage the event the way I want to stage it? And I I think poor. I think poor every day of my life. I want to make sure I'm getting value because I don't like people taking liberties with me. And I don't take liberties with people. So if you, you know, we're not in this business to get rich quick. We're in this business to build a solid, sustainable business that can hold its own through travel times like now and through the good times. You know, the rules are still the same. Yeah. Tell, tell me a bit more about Ronnie O'Sullivan, your relationship with him. Uh, it's, I mean, I've managed Ronnie twice. Obviously, I've known him since he was 12 years old. We have an up and down relationship if you read the papers, but we don't actually have much dialogue together as, as we did in the early days. He's got his own life. The thing what people don't really realise about Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's a genius. And geniuses are always a bit mad. And Ronnie is a bit mad. <laughs> but, you know, you can't take one without the other. I mean, Alex Higgins was the same. You can't say, I like the good bits and get rid of the bad bits because that's what makes the total package. Ronnie is the type of player he is because he is the type of person he is. And as much as he might drive me round the bend something, <laughs> I appreciate genius. So I let him yeah. get more rope and understand that he's not the same as everybody else. Moving on then from the snooker to the darts, where do you see the gap in the market with darts? Because that was genius, really, because I grew up in pubs in London and everyone who played darts was drinking 10, 15 pints, smoking fags, eating crisps and playing darts for six, seven hours in the pub. Well, how did you convert that? How did, what went through your mind? It, it was quite, again... It was an opportunity that came about. The, the PDC that had formed after the big split with the, the amateur body, um, the top 16 players in the world left, as you know, and they decided they could, they wanted to be part of something bigger to get more reward, have more opportunity. That's sort of history. So the PDC were forming. They came to me and, and said, look, you know, we love our darts, but we need a bit more expertise in our TV negotiations and such like. Would you would you help us? And I started helping them, you know, for no no apparent reason other than it was a business opportunity. And then I went down to the Circus Tavern in Perthleet and I walked in and I can honestly say I felt like I was walking. I was coming home. You know, this is, you know, with me, I only promote sports that I love. And I only, you know, if I haven't got a passion for them, it's, I'm a long way past doing it for the money now. I'm doing it because. I love it. And it also, by the way, it makes a shed load of money. So that's, <laughs> that's a touch. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, you'd still be doing it if it didn't. So I, yeah. so I tell myself, and I hope that's true. But yeah. I walked into Perthley with Dick Alex and Tommy Cox, two of the founder members of the PDC, two brilliant guys. 
Tommy's unfortunately no longer with us, but Dick has, has been there and they were there at the beginning and there it is their baby. And you're in a, you're in a little venue by the M25. Uh, it's 800 people in there. There's a low ceiling. There's more chewing gum than carpet on the floor. Everyone's, as you say, is having a pint, having a cigarette, gambling. And I just turned around to Dick Alex and said, I can smell the money. Yeah. I mean, I thought to myself, here's a sport. Here's a sport. From where we all come from, really, it's evolved. It used to be working class. It's classless now, really, dark. But in those days, it was a pub game, wasn't it? But it mm. was a pub game that millions of people played, millions of people understood, and it was capable of creating great moments in, in a technical sense, in terms of the play itself, but also in a different type of atmosphere than any other sport I'd come across. This was, you know, this was party time. I suppose it was a bit like your, maybe your boot parties in the, in the car park at rugby or something like that, you know? <laughs> it was something unique to the sport of everyone having a good time. Yeah. They were enjoying world-class sport, but it was, it was only half of their entertainment. The other half was the chanting, the singing, chatting to their mates, having a good time, having a decent drink, Going home with a smile on their face, having not been ripped off at expensive ticket prices. So you you coupled that all together. And I thought to myself, this is such a simplistic game. Why can't it be taken all over the world? It's easy to understand. It's 501 yeah. for starts, finish on a double. You don't have to go to university. And <laughs> these boys were prepared to sacrifice their lives in terms of getting better and better. So the entertainment value went up. The customer experience had to be better, of course, as we'd always try to make, you know, give them more value for their tickets, ticket money. And, but the volume was there and there was no competition. So to my mind, it was quite straightforward. Get involved early doors, as I did. And then eventually, of course, I bought the company or bought majority stake in the company. And then started putting my plans in because it needed financing, it needed capital, you know, you, which I had. And we set up a proper organisation with really qualified, great kids that have grown into the job over the last 15 years. Used a business, which is a global business, unbelievably. I'll tell you a funny story and then you'll you get an insight. When I first took over, they, uh, we needed some money. And I suggested we do a share a share issue. And I said, look, you know, let's be fair to everybody. You need half a million quid extra to finance this, what I've got in mind. I said, so go to your shareholders and offer them additional shares. And anyone who doesn't pick them up, I will. And it ended up where I ended up buying £400,000 worth of shares, which was 40% of the PDC. I subsequently bought more. I've now got about 60%. But in those days, 40%. So I didn't know for sure it was going to be a big success, but I thought I needed some allies, some friends. So I went to Sky Television, to the head of sport, great guy called Vic Wakelin, one of my favourite Geordies. Tough, tough, appreciate it. And said, look, I'm buying 40% of the PDC. I believe in darts. I think it's got a big future. Would you like 10% for £100,000? Seat on the board and voice at negotiations and... And he looked at me and he went, oh, it's a bit small for Skybound. <laughs> he turned it down. I was delighted because I kept it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But there's, a, there's an example of sometimes, and he was a great operator, this guy, Vic Wakelin, but he missed a golden opportunity. Mm. And it's a risk-reward opportunity. When you look at the event business, if you're clever enough in the event business, it doesn't cost you an awful lot of setup money. It's not like going out and buying a bit of land or, you know, buying a factory or buying some machinery. Most of it's in your head and it's, it's hard work and it's about use, thinking on your feet and using your brain. It's not necessarily about who's got the most money. It's about who's the smartest. And in that particular case, although Vic Wakelin was probably one of the smartest head of sports I've ever known at Sky, he made a bad mistake because the 10% today will be worth a huge amount of money. Love it. What's the um, Ali Pali? How many years you've been running the uh, World Darts at Ali Pali at Christmas time? Oh, we're about eleven years there now. I think. Is it? Yeah, I think it time flies so quickly. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm seventy-two myself now, so 
you know, it, it's going too fast. I'm trying to put brakes on father time, but yeah. not easy. But there's a situation when, you know, you, again, you, you think you, you maximize, maximize your revenue, minimize your expenses. It, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And we're looking at Circus Tavern. I love the Circus Tavern for the atmosphere with the blokes there, the, the people in charge. It was just a terrific relationship. But unfortunately, we outgrew it. You know, 800 seats wasn't enough. You know, a small venue off, off the M25 didn't resonate with what I was trying to do in terms of elevating the image of the sport. And then I looked at, I used to play cricket at Alexandra Palace in my youth. There used to be a horse racing track down the bottom of the hill, I used to remember. And I thought, it's, it's one of the iconic buildings in London, isn't it? it? Sits on the top of the hill, it's magnificent. The home of the BBC when it first started, the first broadcast came from Alexandra Palace. It had history with a great exhibition. You know, hundreds of years of history. It was, of course, falling to bits as well, uh, as so many of these places are. But that suddenly looked to me as the home. I think it was a, a clever, a really clever move, not just from the fact that it gave us 3,000 a session capacity instead of 800, but in terms of the image, you know, our, our business is a, a lot about perception. If people perceive it to be quality, then you will opened new revenue streams because of that, you know, yeah. uh, and Alexandra Palace has ticked the boxes. And of course, when we went there, Alexandra Palace was home to like railway exhibitions and yeah. needlework classes or something. And yeah. There's this vibrant 17 days of darts. And on mm. the back of that, of course, you know, we've gone back, we've taken boxing there. We've taken the Moscone Cup there. We do the Masters Snooker there. We do the World Ping Pong Championships there. And, and of course, on the advertising by, via television for Alexander Palace themselves, they've elevated their image and it's given them more revenue opportunities to make sure that marvellous building stays in, in use. Yeah, you nailed it on the head. A massive win-win for both parties, isn't yeah, it? It has to be. I mean, Rockefeller yeah. once said that every deal is better if both sides end up with a bit of bread in their mouth. Yeah. The smart the smart people in this world are, of course, not smart at all. You know, the clever boys that we all come across looking for a quick fix, make a quick quit, you know, make a few pounds quickly. They don't build relationships. They don't ever maximise their revenue. You know, these guys, you know, they're the chances. And there's a lot of them in the event. <laughs> and, and you look at them, you go... And they, and they walk around as if, look how smart I am. I've just done this. I screwed this guy. I've done this. I've done that. Yeah. Mate, they don't exist after a few yeah. years. They just, they're just not even there. You've yeah. got to have, like, when you build a house, the foundations have to be solid. And that's not just financial foundations. That's foundations like character, like integrity, like honesty, like when people shake your hand, they know you've got a deal. And you don't renege on it. Now, that comes, as you look at your own events, you know, that comes in time. It doesn't happen straight away. So, you know, from my early days in 82, starting off thinking I might try and keep myself busy doing a couple of things. Yeah. They, there's 650 event days in the matchroom globally, you know, and growing and growing. It won't be long before we get to 1,000 event days in a year. I mean, wow. it's a lot to take in and it requires you know, considerable finance, but it also, more than anything, it requires the right management and the right yeah. thinking. And it needs to be clear, common sense thinking, yeah. not flash boy, look at me. The bloke that's got the big car, but then you find out it's leased. You know, yeah. bloke that's got, <laughs> yeah, on tick. You know, we <laughs> call them, we call them fur coat, no knickers. Brilliant. How many, how many staff you got, Baz, full time? About 125-ish, 130, somewhere around that. I mean, obviously, like, as you know, in the event business, if you're running a proper business, I mean, because we have offices in New York, in Shanghai, Beijing, I mean, obviously, we've got people all over the place. Mm. But the big numbers comes in on that, as, as every event business, come in on the, for the event and leave after the event. So we'll go up to, I think, our biggest event, the World Darts Championships had 850 people working on that event. Wow, 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 wow. Mo moving on, Baz, you, uh, you're the owner of Leighton Orion Football Club. 
when you before you bought Leighton Orient, did you have in the back of your mind thinking, you know what, I could I could earn money out of this business, or did you genuinely think this is a loss leader? No, I mean I was such a muppet, I can't tell you. <laughs> you know, I'm quite a sensible bloke, but every now and again, your heart and your wallet yeah. merge, and it's do you know what we're human beings. Yeah. So we're all susceptible. So I've been a late Orient fan, but not, not, I wouldn't, you know, since I was the first club I ever went, I was 11 years old. I went to the Orient because it was a small family club and I lived in the East End, you know, it was on your doorstep. You never forget that, but yeah. I'm a, I've acquired common sense since then. And then of course they hit very rocky financial times. They came to see me and said, would you buy it? I've, I've told all my people we never ever get involved in football it's a fundamentally flawed business yeah. it's purely ego you just don't want to do it unless you're at the very top end of premiership football which is not my favourite anyway because yeah. I think they've lost their way in the, in the world of football but that's another story mm. supporting your local football club is wonderful these guys came to see me there's no way I buy a business that's losing half a million pound a year, a million pound a year. Why? And then they they said something very clever, these guys. They said, come to the ground and see the potential. Now, potential is a very worrying word because there's no real definition. It's intangible, isn't it? It's up in the air. What is potential? It's in the mindset. Yeah. It, again, it's down to perception. I went to the ground. All I could think about was I used to stand over there when I was a kid. And the next thing, my heart and my wallet merged and I bought the bloody thing. And of course, when I got it, didn't pay, I didn't pay hardly any money for it, but I inherited a lot of debts that had to be paid, million plus, two million, I don't know. And then I had 19 years of aggravation, frustration, workload beyond belief, and I wouldn't change a day of it. It yeah. was bloody marvellous. I was pleased to get out after 19 years because... You know, Matrim had expanded so much at that period. I really need to spend more time doing my day job. But I had moments with the football club. In 19 years, I made a profit once. I broke even twice and I lost money for 16 years. And I'm a good operator. I mean, no, yeah. I don't waste money. I maximise my revenues. It's impossible. It's just impossible to break even unless you have a fluke. You know, mm. the year we made a profit, we drew Arsenal in the FA Cup. Somehow or the other, we we drew 1-1 one, one at our place. We had a return leg at, at the new Emirates Stadium. And that made enough money to make my only profit. My only yeah. profit in 19 years. But, there were, they, they, you know, life sometimes... It's very easy for someone with a load of money to say, don't worry about money. Yeah. I've grown up worrying about money. I've had times where I haven't had any, and I've, I'm sure most operators in our business have experienced that. It's make, it makes us what we are, resilient. When you do get success, it's not about the money. It really is more about the passion. Again, I still own the ground at Lake Norian. I lease it back to the club. So I've got my fatherly eye on it to make sure they're protected. They've got some some really good owners now that are trying their best but football is a fundamentally flawed business and it can't make money you can't make money unless you don't have any ambition if you've no ambition what on earth are you in football for to start with mm, agreed you know I, if you were buying a premier league it's a different set of rules there you can make a return on investment you can do what so many people do you can borrow money against assets take your money out that's a prop that's a proper business that i don't necessarily approve of the lower leagues is all about passion and supporting your local club and where you came from i wouldn't want to change that for anything but don't go into that business unless you realize you ain't going to do anything but your brains i had a manager once called tommy taylor he used to play for west ham's a blinding geezer i loved him Big fella, didn't take any nonsense, old school. And he loves signing players. And at one stage, I had 38 <laughs> players on the board. And, and I called him in one day. I said, Tommy, am I, am I missing the point here? I said, there's only 11 on the pitch, isn't there? Why have we got 38 players? And he went, Chairman, it's funny you should say that. I just need one more. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, by the time he left the office, I'd said, Yeah, go on then. Yeah, yeah a bit. <laughs> so 
So, you know, it's the passion involved. And as I say, when I go up to wherever I go, heaven or hell, the last thought I will have, I'm sure, will be 10 or 12 fabulous moments in my life that, that I'd never forget. Three or four of those will be late, Noreen. Amazing. Yeah. Out of all the Lovely. thousands of events I've done, yeah. still some of the biggest days of my life, nothing to do with money, usually, just yeah. due to excitement. Yeah. What was, what was that? Did you sign Harry Kane later, Noreen? We didn't sign him. Uh, Harry Redknapp's been a pal, and he's a proper geezer, as you know. Yeah. He's, he's going to come on. He's a right good lad. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, you get, <clears throat> don't waste your time talking to me. He's much funnier than I am. <laughs> I phoned Harry up one day and said, Harry, I'm banging trouble. Bottom of the league. Can't win a game. Have you got anyone? And I mentioned one of his players that I thought he might release. And he went, Bow, I like you too much to let you have him. He's rubbish. Right. Which I thought was honest. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll send you three kids. Pay me. He said, I know you ain't got any money. Uh, Orion. So give us £500 a week so it looks right. You know, look. And yeah. I'll send you these three kids. And he sent me, Harry Kane. Tommy Carroll, who was captain of Swansea, another world-class player, well, great player. And a winger, the name escapes me, but he went to Anderlecht, who was like yeah. lightning. Yeah. Those three, they, those three changed my season. And it was a very good example of our Premier League, as always, Harry Rednappy. Harry likes to say, oh, I'm, I don't understand this and I don't understand he that. He knows. But get he it. Knows. But get it. He yeah. knows everything that's going on. He's as shrewd yeah. and as sharp as they come. I yeah. love him for that. But he's got his lovely way about him as being, and I hope we've all got it, just not getting too big for our own boots, know where we come from, play it straight, be honest, that's all. Not don't cost money, to be honest. And Harry Redknapp, that system is a system that can actually save football. Common sense, you know, a relationship between smaller clubs and bigger clubs. You know, Lake Norris never going to be as big as Tottenham Hotspur. Never. But it doesn't mean to say that can't work in harmony, and we did, and that was a good illustration of how the game should work. Totally agree. What was the what was the arguing between Leighton Orient and West Ham at the time when the London Stadium was being? Uh... It was it was pathetic, really. I mean, originally when we won the Olympic bid, the stadium was to be given to Leighton Orient at the Olympics. Uh, then they realised that they wanted to put a, a, rate, a running track round it, and I said to them, "This doesn't work." Yeah. But government, you know. Politicians being politicians, the one thing they don't have is a lot of common sense. I mean, academically, they might be very bright, but frankly, in business, absolutely zero chance. They went ahead and built a track. I said, I don't dislike my fans enough to move to a track yeah. with an athletic stadium built around. So we passed and they ended up realising that the only way it could be sustainable to any extent is to make it a football club. But they kept the athletics track. I mean, the whole thing was a mishmash. Eventually, what should have happened, really, Lake Norin and West Ham should have shared that stadium, with West Ham being the principals, obviously. Yeah, but because it was only a mile from our stadium, it made sense. And then we could have created something which gave real community value, not lip service, which is currently in vogue to the community we could have really i mean lake norham was a massive community club one community club of the year many times through his coaching activities amongst underprivileged kids we don't talk about it we actually did it so we could have formulated that but west ham bless their cotton socks wanted to keep it exclusively for themselves and there was inevitably a little bit of bad feeling especially when i found out that the government had given them a deal, which was the deal of the century. Unbelievable, eh? Unbelievable deal where the taxpayer will be paying for that stadium for 99 years. And I have said at the time, listen, I don't mind you bunging West Ham, but why don't you bung us as well? Yeah. Because we're the little small community club, and frankly, we got overlooked. And when it suited the politicians to quote Lake Norris Community Service, when it came to the nitty-gritty, Boris Johnson, bless his cotton socks again, just wanted to get the problem off his plate. So he agreed to the worst deal I have ever seen in my whole life. 40 grand a week, West Ham pay. Oh, yeah, but no, it's worse than that. Yeah. It's the stadium pays for the stewarding. The yeah, policing, absolutely. The ground yeah. upkeep is yeah. the deal of the century. And by the way, yeah. if West Ham get regulated, re relegated, I think their rent comes down by half. It, I mean, look, good luck to West Ham. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've all, we all like a touch. 
And we all like that bit. And good luck to Karen Brady, who negotiated the deal, or Lady Brady, whatever her name is now. Yeah. <laughs> she done she done an amazing job for West Ham. Yeah. She did a terrible job for the country yeah. because she saddled taxpayers with a bill around. I mean, but listen, the government was stupid enough to go along with it. They, they, I begged them, let me do the negotiations for you. Give yourself a chance because you're way out of your depths, boys and girls. And they didn't listen, as always. And we carried on. Yeah, has it hurt us? No, at all. Not really. We are, in a way, we're part of the scenery in that part of the world. We appeal to people that want to watch real football, if you like. I mean, community football, we hope. Of course, we have, you know, Lake Norton has aspirations the same as any other small club. West Ham have got the deal of the century, and I say good luck to West Ham. But it does show you the people in charge and how inept they are. Mm. So we've got to take that into account. Like any negotiations, the first thing you do is look at who you're negotiating with mm. and then act accordingly. We're all doing, West Ham doing the same rules, maximise revenue, minimise cost. I have to put a massive tick on them. I think they've done a, an amazing job. I think it could have been done better for the community. I think we could have worked out a system where we shared the ground with West Ham having, obviously, the principal shout on it, but us having the opportunity to potentially grow within a magnificent stadium. It's still, I mean, it's been a financial disaster, hasn't it? It cost £800 mm. million. Pound. Mm. Now, normally, football clubs pay for their own stadium. Arsenal did. Tottenham did. Um, West Ham have had a touch, mate. So, God bless. Well done. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's move on to boxing. What was the mindset for you to go from from snooker to darts to football? And now you're thinking, right, boxing. Where was the opportunity that you spotted? Well, boxing was the second sport. I mean, I've always been a fight fan. You know, I tried it myself. I wasn't particularly good, unfortunately, but I like one-to-one conflict. Uh, I think it's in the nature <laughs> of every entrepreneur. You, you know, yeah. you like that battler. I was I was poor. Let's be honest. In fact, I was terrible. So, uh, but I've always been a fight fan, and I never like everything. I go to events, other people's events, and I always think, like when I went to the Circus Tavern for darts, I think I can do this better. I think I can do this better. And I used to go to fights and think I can do this better. And 1987 came an opportunity. I did a couple of small shows with Terry Lawless, who used to train uh, Frank Bruno. Uh, I did a couple of Gary Mason fights in South End, and uh, I enjoyed it. I've got a buzz out of it. And then did Bruno Bugner at White High Lane in 87, was a huge success, made a load of money. But over the years, you know, it's given me some wonderful nights out. It's become a, a profitable business. Boxing was, was one of 12 sports. Mm. Now under my son, you know, Eddie's leadership, it, it's taken a new face because it is a, a huge business in its own right. You know, if you see the offices in New York, they're lavish and it's all high tempo stuff. Billion dollar contract with the zone streaming didn't didn't go down too badly either. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it actually works. It works for us now. Something's just been pressed there, Baz. That was Eddie Hearn phoning me, and he's just been cut off for you. Mate. Oh, thank you, mate. Yeah, I hope you're suitably honoured. So, yeah, it's... Uh... What was the game changer? Was it pay-per-view when that first came on the scene? Tell me your experience of pay-per-view, because that, you must have put yourself under huge pressure, because knowing what we know now, well, is that you pay-per-view the majority of people that last 24 hours, but you never knew that back then. No. The game changer was Sky coming into the UK in 1990, you know. That, that was the uh, the big game changer was Sky, no question. I mean, Matchroom wouldn't be the company it is today without Sky Television and Rupert Murdoch. I mean, there's no, you know, I've met Rupert Murdoch once, by the way. Uh, so I'm not, you know, I'm not looking to make a new mate, but I'm just acknowledging the part they played. Along the way came pay-per-view. And as you say, quite rightly, that's a huge speculation and, it really stimulates you to, like in all, you know, in all events, it's, it's selling tickets or selling TV rights. Well, pay-per-view is harder because you don't know what you're going to get until 10 hours, six hours before yeah. the event. So it is speculative, but it can be extremely rewarding if you've got the right product. And it certainly stimulates you to work hard making that product acceptable and 
something that people are happy to pay for. I mean, no yeah. one's happy to pay, you know, but I think people have understood now for the really, you know, the really big events in today's world of sport, uh, one-off events, it requires pay-per-view because otherwise we're not going to get the show that we want or it's going to go to another country or wherever. Yeah. It, it, it is the future. It will change as it matures, perhaps to a more selective um, basis of paying for different sports. You know, some sports fans will pay for their fishing. Mm. Some sports fans will, obviously, most sports fans will pay for premiership football. Mm. But it's a, it's a question of monetization and commercialization that you can work with, provide you've got enough control over the marketing and media of that event. Mm. That's the key issue is if you're a secret, you're in trouble. If you can be famous, if you can get it out there, and this is where social media has played such an important part and no one controls social media better than Eddie and his team. You know, when you've got million plus boxing fans following you on Twitter, it, it's quite easy to sell tickets. Yeah. A bit like Lady Gaga's got 200 million followers or whatever. Well, it's no surprise when she brings out a record, it's well marketed, is it? Because she's got, she's got a database of contacts. That, and, and we all need that. We all need to know who, our, we need to know always more and more about our customers. We need yeah. to know what they are, where they are, who they are, what they like, what they don't like. It, and the more data you get on your customer, the more successful your business will be. And Amazon are a great example in yeah. their business of the information they know about all of us. And that information is fundamental to the success of their business. So we're not all gonna be Amazon size, but the same rules apply even to local operators doing something around their village hall, it helps if you know your market. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when was the point when you knew you got the money in the bank, you could go and buy your dream house, which is in Essex that I came to came to visit with the helipad in the, in the garden and, and what have you. Was there a point that you remember? Well, not really. I mean, I've, I've been blessed to be reasonably successful throughout. I mean, I had a few bad years in sort of, in the recession of 88 and 89 wasn't pretty, but, no, I mean, the assets, they just come along when you do deals. I mean, if, you, if you're fortunate enough, I've always operated on a fairly Victorian, laissez-faire basis of putting things away. I like assets I can touch and feel. I, you know, I'm not flat. I don't need private jets and yeah. boats and things like that. I like my life, you know, and I like a fairly simple life. Other people different, yeah. but the house in Essex, which is now our head office, mm. I bought that straight after I sold the snooker business in '82. Oh wow, that's something special, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's nice. It only cost me two hundred and forty grand. Was that what it was? Yeah, it's worth a few quid more now. Happy but day. you know, things like houses, not I don't ever look on them as an investment for money. I look on them as somewhere I want to live. You know, yeah. it's much more important. And what did you do with the uh, Chris Eubank? Was he, was he on your, uh, in your stable? Eubank, yeah, I started him, really. I mean, he joined me after he'd had nine or ten pro fights. We had 19 world title fights together. Wow. I was best man at his wedding, close wow. friends. He's, he's another Ronnie O'Sullivan character. He's brilliant. Yeah. And he's a nutcase. Yeah. He's a nutcase. Yeah. <laughs> but, but look, you know, that's what he is. Take him for what he is and enjoy it for what he is. And that's the attitude I always took to him. We had a wonderfully successful period through, I mean, I think he was one of the fundamental parts of Matram's turnaround after the recession of 88, 89. Yeah. It's no coincidence that Chris Eubank beat Nigel Benn in 1990 and became a household name. Mm. And we had some of the best times of our life together. So, you know, on my wall in my office at uh, Maskell's in, in Brentwood is a picture of Eubank hitting Nigel Ben with yeah. a jab and, and the scorecards around it, which reflect that momentous day in my life when he stopped him and became world champion. Where, where was you that know, held? That was at the NEC in Birmingham. Was it? How many people was there? About 8,000. Um, I mean, it was, it was a gamble. You know, yeah. again, when you look at doing events, there are times when you say, Oh bollocks! Let's just go for, go it. for yes. it. You know, yes. it, there, there's no there's no chapter in the book of business that yeah. explains that, is there? 
it's just in us, yeah. you know. It's like Eddie. Eddie came to see me a few m months ago and said, "Coronavirus, you know, we're going to do boxing in our garden at Brentwood, <laughs> and we're going to call it Fight Camp, and we're going to spend a million pound setting it all up, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Wow, that's yeah. a project, Eddie. Are you sure?" Yeah, and you know, we're fortunate enough to say, "All right, well, let's go for it." Well, similar when you bank for Ben. I gambled that I believed that Chris Eubank could beat Nigel Ben. I thought Styles made fights, and I like Eubank Styles to beat an attacking fighter like Ben. And I was I was right, but it was a hell of a gamble. The show didn't make any money, but what happened that that gamble was the investment in the future of Eubank's career. Mm. And he worked for us, and we both made a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, he was a very successful fighter for us. Yeah. And regarding AJ, what was it like to get AJ on, on your books? What did you have to go through to get AJ on your books to convince him that you were the best partners, uh, match him with the best partners for him? That was Eddie's responsibility, not mine. I mean, Eddie came to see, I mean, when Eddie joined Matchroom, he was a 22-year-old or something. He'd had a few years doing sports sponsorships and stuff like that. And then when I thought he was good enough, I'll bring him into what I think is the top sports business in the world. And he looked after the golf first and then he looked after the poker, did a good job on both. And he came to see me one day and said, you know, I want to do the boxing. And, you know, that's what I want to hear my people. I want to hear people that have got ambition. I want, I don't want yes people around me. I want people that are going to contribute. And, and I've got, I'm blessed to have those type of teams. With AJ, he played it very well. I mean, AJ won the gold medal. Everybody in the world wanted him to sign up. Everybody. I mean, He's a good-looking lad. He's built beautiful. He can fight. He can punch. He's won a gold medal. Who wouldn't want that on your books? That's, that's the top target. And Eddie sort of played it slow. He played, for those of you that play poker, he played pocket aces slow. He didn't go all in on. And he said to AJ, listen, I think we're the best, and I think you're the best, and I think we're a great partnership. But go around the world and go and see everybody. And when you've seen them all, come back and see what you think of our operation. And that's what AJ did. And he went and saw everybody, everybody. And he came back and he said, I want to sign for Matchroom. And we're friends. Uh, he's a major part of our business. He is an asset and we will take a bullet for him. Yeah. And that's the type of loyalty and relationship you need. Yeah. And, and he's been fantastic. I, I've, you know, I've never been so impressed with a sportsman in all my years as I have with Anthony Joshua. Mm. He's smart, he's loyal, and he's honest. Comes and across he, as a good man, doesn't he? And he works hard. He yeah. works hard, you yeah. know. And he's making a shed load of money. Yeah. And he's going to make a lot more when he fights Tyson Fury, yeah. hopefully. Yeah. And you think... We you keep our fingers crossed. What were your thoughts on that fight? Fury versus AJ. I think AJ wins easy, but no one, you know, there's, there's lots of Fury fans out there don't agree with me. Styles make fights. They start off with that. So forget who they've fought, what they've done, what they, the chat's about. Styles make fights. Tyson Fury is a very clever, nimble-footed, quick-thinking heavyweight who's massive. AJ is, I think, slightly slower than AJ to, than Fury to the punch. But the big difference is AJ hits a lot, lot harder. Tyson Fury does not have a knockout record. He, but he's the type of fighter that beats you up and stops you, you know. And he's very tricky to land clean on. But when he gets landed on, he goes down. He does get up. I mean, unbelievable. We're getting up against Deontay Wilder. I was staggering. But if you get, if you get up and then you get knocked down again, then eventually you stay down. I think AJ is too strong, too heavy-handed for him. And I don't think Tyson Fury... I think Tyson Fury can confuse him, but not necessarily hurt him early. So if he doesn't do that, once AJ's in mode, uh, he's an animal. Uh, I, think he, I think he stops Tyson Fury. But again, I'm, I've been wrong before. I think it was a long time ago, <laughs> but I have been wrong before. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, boxing is a money business. The same as, you know, these guys are in it for a short period of their time. It's a very dangerous job. So they deserve every penny they get. And this fight's going to generate, you know, 
well over 200 million wow so it's going to be it's going to be the biggest heavyweight fight financially of all time and but there's a couple of obstacles aj looks like he's going to fight pulev in december who's a tough guy but i think aj's big favorite and so far i'm still hearing that that deontay wilder has exercised his rematch clause with tyson fury deontay wilder is not very good but he can punch. There's right no answer, doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. So if if Tyson Fury does, Tyson Fury was outstanding against Deontay Wilder last time. He just tied him up in knots and bashed him up, basically. He was brutal to watch. No answer. If a puncher doesn't land a punch, he has no other asset. And Deontay doesn't have any other asset because technically he's not very good. I mean, that's not me being hard. It's just accurate. So I, I would expect Tyson Fury to do the same job on him again, if indeed they fight because there's a lot of doubt whether Deontay Wilder really wants that fight, having been so outclassed in the first one. But he's still, Deontay's still got a puncher's chance. He put Tyson Fury down twice in the first fight. He can punch. But just being a punch when you go up to world-class, and Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua are world-class heavyweights, is not enough. You've, you've got to be able to do more than just punch. Uh, and that's what that's the test for AJ, who can definitely punch a lot harder than Tyson Fury. But you've got to land your punches. So that comes into the technical side of the fight. I, I'm, I'm very happy with that fight. <laughs> um, I was, mind you, listen, I was very happy with the Ruiz fight and Ruiz beat Joshua. So what do I know? You know, that it, boxing can throw up the most amazing things. I mean, if you watch that Povetkin against Dylan White oh, fight, that the uppercut, day, unbelievable, wasn't it? I mean, um, mm. and by the way, you know, I was watching that on TV at my office, which has got a four-second delay because of satellite. I heard someone go ooh in the background, and I'm watching it on the TV, thinking, "Oh, Dylan White must have knocked him out," and it was Dylan White got knocked out. But that's heavyweight boxing, and you have to be big enough of a man. And Dylan is. Dylan will be bounced back. He's. He's a great lad and he's a good, good, good fighter. He'll bounce back. And, and probably if he fights Povetkin again, I make Dylan White a massive favourite to beat Povetkin. But boxing can do strange things to you. So that AJ Fury fight, do you, as a promoter, how does the business model work? Do you pay them up front or no. do they work on a cut? No, and as a promoter, no, 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 how do no, you no, earn? No, 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 it's all changed now. Boxing's okay. changed. So, I mean, going back, you know, the old days, People like me, promoters, were the bosses, and we told the fighters what they get and when they get it and who they're fighting. That's all changed. I mean, today, the promoter works for the boxer. The fighters own the show. When it gets to that size, they get the show, and the percent and the promoters work on a percentage. So the promoters are motivated to maximise revenue because they're on a percentage of it. But at the same time, there is no chance in today's world that the fighter can get ripped off because they have full access to all information, they control the show. It's a much better system than it used to be. It really works well. That's amazing. And what are your thoughts on, we, you and I hooked up in Vegas a few years back, five or six years back, and you were talking about selling broadcasting rights. Just explain to me what you mean by selling broadcasting rights. Well, yeah, I mean, maximise your revenue. When you own a show, whatever the show is, you look and say, where have my principal where's my principal income coming from? And it may be ticket sales in the case of darts is massive on ticket sales. Obviously it, it may be sponsorship snooker's massive on sponsorship because, but the biggest item of revenue is always in, in broadcast rights. So domestic broadcast rights effectively become your host broadcaster. Like we work with Sky or ITV or BBC. They generally put in TV production. Sometimes, sometimes we'll work for them in another role by doing that. Uh, but the the up for none money, if you like to call it that, is is the syndicated sales around the world, and that's where you have to do a lot of work to maximise your TV rights. And it can be mind blowing difference in terms of maximising that revenue. You know, when you get a sport, and if you take darts as an interesting one, darts a pub game that came out, BBC ITV did some, Sky got involved and did a really good job on it. Um, but when I took over, my job was to maximise the UK revenue and overseas. We had $40,000 a year coming in from overseas and £100,000 a year coming in from Sky. Right. So you go to work. And both of those now, both areas are double-digit millions now. 
which is a success. Um, but it, it comes about by, you know, when you talk about it, it's not, you don't just pick up a phone or you don't write something, you don't send everyone out an email. You do, we do trade exhibitions in, you know, Monte Carlo, in Miami, Singapore, Taiwan, Los Angeles. I mean, it's it's it's, Peckham. it's all over. <laughs> Peckham is great. Funnily enough, we don't in London we do it by meeting people face to face. And you do, you spend a lot of time. I mean, this COVID-19 has changed it because I'm usually on a plane every two or three weeks somewhere. And my wife says to me every morning, have you got your begging bowl with you? You know, because I'm <laughs> I'm like a traveling salesman and it's like, roll up, roll up. You know, I've got, I got 4,000 hours of live sport. Who's interested in fishing, you know? And, and, and literally you develop relationships around the world again on the same basis as we do everywhere else. If you're respectful, if you deliver, if you're value for money, you'll get more and more customers. If you're not, you'll be out of business and find yourself another job. Well, I don't like, I don't like plan B. I like plan A. Eddie, your son, has he always been passionate about boxing? And did you hold him back as a dad for a bit before you unleashed him? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, uh, yeah, he has been. He's always, I don't know why. I mean, he's a big lump anyway, so probably he, he had to have a go. Again, I think he, well, he was better than me because the last fight I had was with him and in the gym, the proper one, and the, he dropped me twice in the second round. Did he? It was a proper fight. Yeah, oh, I wanted to find out. Because he went to public school, I was always concerned he might be one of those rich kids yeah. that I wasn't, yeah. you know, that I used to hate at school. Yeah. Um, so I, I found out, and, and you know, I was bruised. Body body shots never been my strong point. <laughs> uh, and we had no, we had a proper tear up. He was only sixteen. I was 45, yeah. 46. Yeah. And I found out that I I was very pleased with what I had as a son. Yeah. And so I left, although battered never to put gloves on again. Yeah. Uh, I swore that to my wife. Uh, I left happier than he did. But so he's always been, you know, at home. I, I work all the hours that God sends because it's my life and I enjoy it. But he's always, from seven or eight years old, he was always standing behind me listening, listening to my conversations with Don King or Bob Arum. And then he started coming to the shows when he was nine or 10. Then by the time he was 12 or 13, he was selling programs and meeting fighters and hanging around gyms. Then he did a bit himself. So it was, it was a natural progression. You know, when he left school, he, he, he played a lot of sport. He was, you know, county cricketer from under 12s to under 18s. So, you know, he had a lot of ability, but not enough to make a living, same as me. So therefore, what better way than to be a promoter rather than a participator? When you haven't got ability, it's, you've got more longevity as a promoter. He went off, I, you know, they, I mean, people say, Rich kid, I always take the mick out of him. So call him Silver Spoon. Silver. He didn't have, you know, he, he had a slightly better start than I had, but that's what every dad's responsibility to their children is to give them a better start. So no, no shame there. You can only play the hand you're dealt with. And he went off after got his A levels or whatever from school. He went to college after he, he finished at, at Brentwood School. He didn't really finish. They more or less slung him out. He was a handful. <laughs> Uh, but then he went off and did his own thing and, and did a couple of years learning, sell, selling stuff. He did everything, double glazing phone calls, which is great training. You know, in our business, you've got to, you've got to get used to the word no, uh, you know, and it mustn't upset you. You know, you must say, yes, thank you very much and bounce back. And then he went off into some golf management business and things like that. And then by the, I think he was 22, 23. It was time. And uh, he's, he's been an he's enormous smashing asset, it, isn't he? He's, he's so far ahead of his opposition, it's frightening. I look around the landscape now, and including myself, by the way, we're just not, we're just not fit for purpose, you know, the Barry Hearns, the Frank Warrens and all that. Yeah, we, we love our boxing. We know we're passionate about it. I mean, there's a few. There aren't that many. There's only about three promoters making, making shows Aram. at the moment because of COVID. Well, Bob Arum, yeah, Bob Arum's like me. He's 88. Well, I'm 72. He's 88, for yeah, Christ's sake, wow. you know. I mean, we've got knowledge, of course we have, and we've got contacts, and we've, you know, we know the business and we know boxing, you know, but we don't know today's world. Mm. And it's another world. Mm. It's a social media world. Yeah. 
and and we can't fake it because we won't be a pit. I mean, Eddie has a huge following, whether it's no context earn on, you know, whether it's, I mean, it's just, it's massive. And and that gives him, it's a bit like Dana White on UFC. I, I put Eddie alongside the two of them, I think two innovative promoters that understand the world has changed. Other promoters will try to understand and will fail because it's just, they're just past their sell-by date. It doesn't stop them trying. I mean, you know, my business, my own relationship with my business now is I tend to float above things and people report to me. It is quite casual, you know, do I, am I any good anymore? Well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm more ambassadorial than operational, you know, because the operation has changed and I have to appreciate that change and appoint people to take advantage of that change. And it's not people like me. I'm, you know, Eddie is, he's a trailblazer and frankly, could turn his hand to almost anything in today's world and and be successful. What are your thoughts on uh, Fury and AJ fight being in the UK? Virtually zero. Is that right? Okay. okay. <laughs> Listen, it's remember the remember. You know, it's not. This is a business. This is a business. It's not for. Yeah, I mean, you get hardcore fans say, "Oh, oh come on, you know, remember where you're from." We all remember where we're from. That's why we're in business. But my job, our job, is to maximise the earnings of our client. And we will go where the money is. Now, at the moment, the money would seem to be in the Middle East, but that's not, it's not a done deal. If not, the money might be at Wembley. And all it does is you work out those columns using common sense, Where's the maximum revenue? Because I, we have a responsibility. We have a fiduciary responsibility under contract to our client. The ultimate choice of where that venue will be will rest with Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua because they're the bosses. And we will present to them, this is the revenue for Wembley. This is the revenue for Saudi Arabia. This is the revenue for Las Vegas. This is every New York. You tell us because we are working for them and that's how it should be. Wow. 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 Baz, just before we wrap up here, mate, I've got one question for you. What's, what's that tattoo on your left arm? I'm not telling you. <laughs> no, I, I will tell you because I think you should. You know, we've known each other a long time, yeah. so you should have an exclusive. <laughs> right. I've always wanted, don't ask me why, I've always wanted a tattoo. Now, I'm getting a bit old for all this stuff. But about 10 years ago, I'm in Vegas and I thought, I'm going to get a fat, I'm going to get a tattoo. And, you know, I looked in the mirror and said, you always talked about it. I don't like people that talk about things and don't do it. So I thought, you're falling into that category. You've always talked, you know, and downstairs on the ground floor of the Mandalay Bay is a tattoo, big tattoo parlor. So I've gone down there. I've met Enrico. I've given him $400. And he said, what do you want? I said, I want a heart emblazoned in fire with the words family underneath. So every morning I get up, I kiss my family and I go to work. And he did it for me. I came home and my wife went apoplectic. <laughs> And my son, Eddie, said, Dad, that's the worst tattoo <laughs> I've ever seen. And my daughter said, Dad, you're so cool, Love which it. was the reaction I was looking for. But I was very proud of it. Anyway, of course, the story continues is two years ago, I'm back in Vegas thinking I should balance the arms <laughs> off. And I found Enrico. I give him another $400. And I have exactly the same tattoo on the left arm underneath it as the only word that nearly means as much as my family and the word is simply life and that's the word underneath the other tattoo so on one side I have my family on the other side my life and in between everything's going rather well that's amazing wow absolute pleasure Baz absolute pleasure to talk to you and, and get into your mind the reason I don't do too many of these sort of things the reason I deal with you is because you're a good example of someone who had an idea, who lived a dream, who went through the tough times and is going through the tough times again now. But you know that that little light 
at the end of the tunnel is not a train coming towards you. It is the land of opportunity. We live in the greatest country in the world. People like us, we're not necessarily born to it, but people like us have taken advantage of the opportunity this country lives. And I think there's other people out there, youngsters in particular, that could be inspired by example to get off their backside, to put in a proper shift over and over again. And to be, in the words of Eddie Hearn's book that's coming out in October, relentless. That's what Eddie is, that's what I am, and that's what you've been. So respect to everyone that keeps being relentless against all the odds. You have to go through the bad times to experience the good times. But when you get there, make sure you understand who helped you get there. And then you'll be fine as a person and as a business person. So God bless everybody. Try and get through this COVID-19 healthy. And let's keep positive in thought, yeah? Let's keep positive at all times. Baz, you're an absolute legend, mate. And um, I can't wait to hook up soon. Have a Stay fight. well, Rod. Be good, boy. <laughs>